Welcome back to another week of Schizophrenic Reads, the podcast. This week, we're joined by Jake Biddle. He's the author of The Great Displacement, Climate Change, and the Next American Migration. This is one of my favorite books of the year. It's such a fascinating look at climate change and told through specific stories of particular cities. And we're going to get into some of those cities and some of the stories from those. But first, let me just welcome to the show, Jake. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks so much for having me. Jake, I want to ask probably the question that you... I would assume you get asked almost daily and a question that me and my friends are basically always asking, is there a safe place to live in the era of climate change? And I think this is going to lead into like kind of the rest of the conversation, but I think it's just it's the question that's kind of on everyone's mind at this point. Yeah. Good first question. Most people ask it last, which is not actually good to do it first. So yes and no, right? I mean, no, like there's no place in the world that is immune from every kind of climate disaster, right? Like heat waves can happen anywhere, as we saw in Pacific Northwest in 2021. Floods can happen anywhere. And you go really far north, there's huge wildfires in Canada, Siberia and Arctic, right? But there are places that are riskier than others. I think this is like a really important sort of nuance to keep in mind, right? It's like some places in the world are really, they face existential risk from climate change. These are, you know, small islands in the Pacific Ocean, extremely hot parts of the Arabian Peninsula, right? These are places where life is is gonna potentially become untenable over the next decades. Coast of Louisiana is is routinely vulnerable to hurricanes. So there's risk and there's risk, right? And some places have existential vulnerability to climate change to the point where it's not clear that society can continue in those places. And some places are just vulnerable for the same reason that every place in the world is vulnerable to anything, which is just that like, it's impossible to construct a climate-proof building or a climate-proof city or climate-proof human being. So no, nobody's safe, but some places are safer than others. Um, Yeah. You have, I think, uh, both kind of stories in this book. Yeah, one of the chapters is on Houston, Texas, which is a city of uh, was it almost five million in like the uh, the whole area, and like it will sustain itself in some capacity. But there's other areas that you talk about in this book, like uh, Point Sheen, Is that how it's pronounced in Louisiana? Yeah. Which is just yeah. it's it's pretty much gone. Like it's there's there's just really not much remaining. I honestly. One of the questions that I had kind of like reading this book the most was like, (laughs) I think in some way there's like a hyper focus on the in the American culture on like the disaster itself. So like when we talk about like the campfire or we talk about like a really horrific event, we focus on this like movie or picturesque like moment in time instead of like the months and the years of how climate change is positioning itself and like do you like as a writer of this and as someone that's like on the ground talking about these issues daily do you like how do you view that like the conversations that we're having as public because it really does seem like we almost always want to focus on just like the one pinpoint of some crazy event happening instead of just realizing like it's happening all around us kind of all of the time yeah that's a really good point I mean I think that Part of the reason why I wanted to, or like the initial idea that I had when I worked on the book was like to try to see what happens, you know, after the, you know, media coverage of the disasters ends, which, as you said, is usually like a few days after the storm passes or the fire goes out or whatever it is. But, you know, the impact of, I mean, so I came to this book from 
into the topic of climate change generally from writing a lot about housing and homelessness. And what, you know, one thing that you know pretty fast when you work on that is that people's like housing situations unfold over the course of years and like getting evicted, right, or becoming homeless. It takes years for the consequences to become clear. It takes years for people to recover. And so that was kind of like the working thesis I had, right? It's like, if you lose your home in a fire, or if you lose your job because it's not possible anymore because the sea levels have risen too much or you don't have enough water to whatever, to farm, um, you know, it's going to take years for it to become clear what's going to happen to you, right? And I think that, like, that's the question I have. Like, what actually happens to the people on the scale of, like, their life, right? Not the scale of the news cycle. Like, what happened? Like, how does it change their, like, biography, right? Do they die? Do they end up poorer? Do they recover fine after a few years? And so that was, like, my initial thing. But that's not the way that we talk about disasters at all, right? And that's just because of, like, a lot of reasons, like, to do with, like, the way the 24-hour news cycle works and just the way human attention works. But I thought it was important to try to show that like climate change is not just like when the fire is on fire. Like it's very much like a story about how people's lives change for good. Right. And you did a lot of like personal interviews for this book. You talked to a lot of people like living in these specific areas. Uh, so I'm really just curious, like emotionally, how was this whole process? I, I mean, I know this is like your life's work. This is what you do, but I have to imagine you know, with a book length project, you sit with it for months at a time. So, you know, how, how emotionally were you holding up with that? Um, I mean, yeah, it was a little bit in the moment. It was, it was difficult when you're interviewing, like when I was interviewing people who had gone through really, really tough things. Um, like it was hard, I think for me more from a, not, not so much out of a like concern for, the state of the world and more just, I felt, I felt guilty about making people relive their experiences mm -hmm. that they had, you know, this is some, for many people, many people, and I spoke to like hundreds of people and some of them didn't really care about what had happened to them. They weren't, but for some people, this was the worst thing that had ever happened to them in their life. Right. And I was going years yeah. later, I said, well, can you tell me every, can you tell me everything about it, like every possible detail. So like that, I felt, yeah, that was draining, right? Because it's like, you know, as a reporter, you can't really, I'm not crying with them, right? I'm just like listening and just sitting quietly. So that was, a, that was a lot. Um, but it was weirdly, I think, I don't know, maybe because I've just been on the issue for a while. It was weirdly more about the individual, like emotional sort of weight of the stories for people than it was about like the sort of like large scale problem of climate change, which like for whatever reason, it doesn't, like I don't get drained by that thinking about that, even though obviously it's terrifying, I get more drained by like, just like, it's like, it can be really heavy to talk about that stuff with people, even if they say they've recovered, you know, after 10 years or something. No, weirdly enough, I like, I think I really understand that because I, you know, my whole internet persona is talking about nonfiction books. And I don't touch on, you know, like self-help stuff. So most of the stuff I read is pretty dark and bleak. And people are always like, how do you like emotionally hold up? And it's like, I just do it. Like, this is what I like. I am so fascinated by this subject. And then every once in a while, something really fucking hits you. And it's it's a little tough there. But for the most part, I have like an endless fascination with so many different things. I am curious. This is a question that I had that like, I, I don't know if there like is an easy answer for this one. But uh, you focus on particular cities. You focus on Big Pine Key in Florida, Kinston in North Carolina, Santa Rosa, California, Point O'Sheen in Louisiana, Houston, Texas, uh, Pinal County, which is just southeast of Arizona or of Phoenix in Arizona, and Norfolk, Virginia, 
Were there any stories uh, or any other locations that you were trying to use for your book that like didn't make it to the final edit of it? Yes, there were a few. That it's not it's not so much that they that I wrote about it and they got cut up. I just never I never really did the writing to begin with because I just ran out of space and time. There were two. One was about I really wanted to write, and I have written a lot since about the Central Valley of California because they were experiencing this amazing kind of swing between extreme drought, uh, which is like destroying the agriculture industry, causing a lot of air pollution, and then like extreme flooding. Uh, and there were these very strange, uh, very, very complicated political conflicts between tribal groups in the mountains who wanted to protect salmon species and cattle ranchers in the valley who wanted the water mm. that the salmon needed uh, for their cattle. And I, I really wanted to do something about like, because I think that one thing that people always talk to me about and always ask about is like the idea of like a water war, or like a war yeah. over climate change. And this was like the closest that I had ever seen to something like that actually happening, but it had less to do with housing displacement. So we took it out, but there was, a, there was something there about migrant farm workers and housing, but I had to take it out. And then I really wanted to write about um, this uh, city called Pine Bluff in Arkansas, which is home to a large number of people uh, from the Marshall Islands, which is the U.S. territory in the South Pacific. So in the 1980s, this is a little bit of, of far afield, but in the 1980s, the U.S. conducted nuclear testing in those islands mm -hmm. and gave people from the Marshall Islands a, basically a free pass to come and emigrate to the United States to escape the results of the nuclear testing. A lot of them came to Pine Bluff, Arkansas. They work in poultry factories there. And now that sea level rise is coming for the Marshall Islands in a huge way a lot of them have come to escape sea level rise and they've come to the same town in a sort of chain migration thing. Ultimately, I just didn't have the money to go to the Marshall Islands and it felt like it would be kind of incomplete if I couldn't. But those are the two things that I was like, those were like the swing for the fences. If I could have done them, I would have. But yeah, there's, I mean, there's, a, and then beyond that, there were like dozens. Well, I mean, that... uh, nonfiction books don't often lend themselves to sequels, you know, like typically no, a nonfiction book not. is just like, you have the idea, you write the idea. And, and that's kind of most of the story, exactly. but yours is yeah, definitely yeah. one of those books that like, there could be 10 versions of this, like that, like you could just keep going. For sure. I mean, I probably could have, I probably could have written a version of the book about everything that happened since I stopped writing the book <laughs> in, November, in November, 2000, November, 2000, it's hard to believe, but November, 2021 was when I submitted the draft and it was delayed because of pandemic supply chain issues. So it was supposed to come out a year ago today ish, but it came out in February of this year. So like, yeah, I could have in the 18 months since then, so much stuff has happened that I could have written about, right? Like, a whole other books worth of stuff. And there will continue to be a whole other books worth of stuff every year, right? Yeah. But yeah, that's a, that's a big, I'm sure that like other people you've talked with about this and you could probably see it in the books themselves. It's really hard to know when to stop yeah. and like how much is enough because it's just going to keep going, right? So like, how do I do the start and end of the book? Like that was the hardest part. Like when does someone's story start and end? I don't know. <laughs> For me, they ended when the book was due, right? So well, it's like very arbitrary. I think we're really lucky that you're continuing on. I mean, in, in a different way, but you're working at The Grist now, which uh, if I have yeah. this right, this is a nonprofit news organization focused primarily on climate change. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Climate change, environmental justice, oil and gas and stuff like that. So I mostly write, I'm, well, not mostly, but I, to a large degree, write about the same stuff sometimes the same places that I was writing about in the book. So I've been able to kind of push forward a little bit on it, but, um, but yeah, it's always weird to see the finished product and know that like people in the <laughs> other things keep happening, the people that you write about and they're not in there. Right? Yeah. 
I am curious, how did you get into this line of work? I mean, obviously it's a growing field right now, but what got you started and at what point was that? Yeah, so this is a tough one for me because I literally can't remember exactly how this <laughs> happened. I, I don't know how this worked. Basically, I, for some reason, in 2019, I was writing about housing, again, almost exclusively about housing and homelessness. And in 2019, I, for some reason, wrote a story about this FEMA buyout program that I also wrote about in Houston, right? So I, I wanted to write about like this idea, like, like why people abandon certain places. And I found these like sort of ghost towns within Houston. I wrote about them again in the book, like neighborhoods that have been emptied out by the FEMA program where FEMA... FEMA basically pays cities to raise, to destroy certain neighborhoods that are vulnerable to flooding, and they pay everyone money to move somewhere else. So I wrote about a few of these neighborhoods in this magazine essay, and that was the first time I wrote about climate change. And I didn't actually know that much about it, except for what I read in the news. Um, but it just quickly became clear, like that essay was supposed to be like 3,000 words or something, and I think I wrote like ten or 12,000 wow. And so it was, there was so which 3000, 3000 words were published, but, <laughs> um, but there was so much left that I was just like, oh, this is like, this is, yeah. And yeah, it's, it's very salient in the news and it's very important, but I was like, wow, this is a, it's a fascinating topic. And I was like, I just have to keep learning about this. And then shortly after that, I started working on the book project because it was COVID and I had no freelance income. So that was why I started working on it. Um, but yeah, so yeah. I have been recommending this book very widely, and I'm going to continue <laughs> for a long Thank while. Um, I have had um, multiple people get back to me like within the last like month or so and tell me that they are checking on their home insurance because of you know reading this book after I had recommended it. And it's, <laughs> that was one of the parts of this book. You know, when I picked it up, I, I knew broadly kind of like the topic that you were going to get into, but yeah. it's a book on housing kind of essentially it's it really focuses heavily on neighborhoods specifically but also on the insurance industry and like what they are doing and like what would be like a point of encouragement you would have for anyone living in these kind of areas is it you know just find out more information about the insurance in the area or you know yeah i mean definitely like you want to know i mean this like states and cities publish maps of like where fire risk is and where flood risk is you should look at how close you are to those areas um and then obviously like a lot of people found out after the fact with the tubs fire well every fire that they were underinsured that they didn't purchase enough insurance like to cover the entire value of their home it's easy to check on that with your insurance company if you can get them on the phone I think that for most people, though, it's like the question is like it's more about assessing your own level of willingness to pay or tolerate the risk, you know, of living in a certain place, mm-hmm. right? Because you can insure your entire house and it still gets destroyed, and then you have to wait a couple months for it to be rebuilt. I think it's just basically like, I mean, people. This is one thing that like came up a lot, right? Is like, and especially in in Pointish in, in Louisiana and like other parts, like people love the places that they're from and they have deep attachments, sometimes like, you know, historical, like tribal attachments to certain places. And like, you know, that's like not for a climate journalist or anyone to say like, that's ill, that's invalid because the place is vulnerable. But like, people just have to like, I think people should just ask themselves, like, what's the full cost of living here if I were to be insured properly? And like, how much do I want to pay that? And like, how much am I willing to live with the risk of like being out of my house for three months while it gets rebuilt or like something similar. And like many people, they know that and they making an educated decision to stay and that's okay. Right. Like, but I think that people just should be like informed. Right. And that looks like 
looking up the maps, looking up your insurance. And that's basically it. You know, that's a starting point at least. Well, something that I got from the book was like, there are certain areas that are are kind of just in some sense doom. And I don't want to get into like super into like yeah. doomerism, but I think like broadly, like culture, we talk about like certain areas as like, you're, you're pretty much fucked. Like, especially like the conversations surrounding Miami with like rising sea levels and everything that comes with that. Um, I read yeah. a book recently on, uh, it's called the disposable city and it's about, yeah, just, good book. it's yeah. just about Miami. And <laughs> do you like, how do you think the news media should handle those types of situations? Cause uh, like, here in Indianapolis, it's not that I'm like, there's no immunity from climate change, but it's, it's not as profound and as like so yeah. painfully obvious in the daily living, but like a place like Miami, it's like, yeah, it's easy to look at it and go like the city will be underwater in 70 years yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. This is a really good question because, and I think that reasonable people could disagree about this, right? Like one view is we should right now, the federal government, you know, the United States should say like, we are developing a plan for the um, unwinding of Miami, right? Like we're going to start giving people money to leave. We're going to give people incentives to build stuff elsewhere. Or can maybe the state could say, we'll tax you if you build in Miami. I'm not sure about the legality of that. Like with the right political will, you could, you could develop a 50 year program to downsize Miami, right? The problem is, if you do that, if you if the president got on TV and said, we're getting rid of Miami in 50 years over time, not only would everyone get really mad, of course, but you would immediately create a kind of downward spiral of disinvestment. Housing values would plummet because people are saying, well, shit, you know, the government's going to move me like the city has no future. Right. I think this is the really big question is like cities, especially, but like capitalist societies generally are founded on, the, they're not just about continuing, it's about growing, right? So real estate as, a, as an industry is pre premised on growth. It has to keep growing. Values have to keep going up. And that's the big question is like, how long can that happen? And can it happen forever? And like, I don't know, like what we're going to do about it is a really good question. My inclination would be to say that they will never do what I said the first thing is of like actually planning. And it'll be a mess, right? Like, People will leave after storms. Home values will go down anyway. Public services will probably get worse as tax revenue goes down, right? Like there's this happened like Fritz, like a, a good parallel is like, like Appalachia, right? Or Detroit, mm -hmm. right? Like these are places that went into a permanent, semi-permanent downward spiral uh, of like disinvestment and uh, lack of services. And they never really recovered. They became less desirable places to live and capital investment moved elsewhere. So like that is like, I think, and then people left, right? Detroit has shrunk considerably. Yeah. All the people who left Detroit went somewhere. We don't know exactly where, or I've never looked it up, but like, or I've never looked it up comprehensively, but like that, that is like the most likely outcome for those places that face existential risk, right? And I think in the, in the chapter on the keys, I was kind of trying to say, you can kind of see this starting to happen there. Yeah. You can see it like, there's no future here. Why would I ever come back? Why would I rebuild? Like, or just why would I move there to begin with, right? And I think that that is the most likely fate of a city like Miami for not every part of Miami, right? Like Miami will not go, the population <laughs> will not be zero right. because there's just too much money there, right? But for a lot of people, that will be the, their fate, right? Well, I I find it really interesting to think about the future of cities because in Indiana we have one of like the most historic 
Rust Belt cities in <laughs> in the whole region as Gary, mm. Indiana, which is just, I mean, basically was one of the greatest cities in the Midwest, you know, in the early parts of the 20th century and is now mm. yeah. just, I mean, mocked <laughs> perpetually because of it's just a hollow shell of its former self. And it's one of those things that like growing up kind of near that area and you just see like, you know, especially growing up in the Rust Belt, like you see how quickly those transitions can happen and like how people disperse. And that's part of your book is kind of getting into this, like the migration of people is not going to be like a super, I would say like linear, but like, it's not going to be super predictable. Like people are going to spread all over the place and how that happens is going to be, I mean, it's going to disrupt every kind of community around the country. So if people are fleeing Texas, you know, it's not like, oh, suddenly Ohio gets a boom of a million people. It's like people are spreading all over the place, uh, which makes it kind of hard to predict kind of the social fabric or the political makeup of the country going forward. I mean, reckoning with like kind of how things will change, do you think there'll be any type of predictable like political movements you know, like one of the questions I've had, like the first question is like, where should I move in the era of climate change? And a lot of people want to say like the Great Lakes, you know, Minnesota. And, you yeah. know, do you do you think areas like that will will garner more people that are like more cognizant of like the realities of climate change? Definitely. Eventually. Yes. Although it's really hard to know on what timeline. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that we can definitely probably say is that like that kind of climate, like voluntary avoidant climate migration will probably be done by younger and more mobile people. Uh, And so as a result of that, it will probably be like an urbanizing trend, Mm -hmm. right? Like people will probably move, regardless of where they're moving from, they will probably move to cities in the regions that become more attractive, right? Like, but I think you're absolutely right about the speed, right? I mean, I don't know, like, I went to Austin earlier this year for South by Southwest. And like Austin, the last time I was there, which was 10, 15 years ago, it was like, it was nothing, there was nothing there. Like, and it was kind of like people really kind of considered like a backwater a little bit. It was like kind of cool and independent and liberal, but like it wasn't, there wasn't much going on. And now it's like, it's insane. Yeah. It's like one of the, it's the it's Texas like city at this point. It's like hugely like there's skyscrapers everywhere. It's really hard to believe, but like, yeah, that trend can be undone really fast. And it can be like, it's pretty amazing how fast it can happen. It happened in the Rust Belt at astonishing speeds sometimes. So yeah, I mean, it could, there's really, it's really hard to predict. And I think a lot of it is like, we just don't even know what questions to ask in terms of like, which cities will benefit. Like, it's just really hard to know. It depends on like, like think about like Amazon, for instance, right? Like Amazon is a major part of the reason why Seattle is so big now, Mm -hmm. but if like the next Amazon gets founded in Minneapolis rather than like Milwaukee, right. It would be Minneapolis that would benefit from climate migration in 50 years. Right. Like it's like, we just don't know. Right. Yeah. Like, so that's, that's hard to predict. Do you see a lot of people moving across countries, especially, I mean, Americans trying to flee into, I mean, really like if people chose now, it would be, it would be Europe. But I mean, North Africa and parts of Asia are under so much duress from climate change. I mean, it's just the patterns, you know, like, I guess when you kind of zoom out, because your story takes place largely in the US, and then you kind of give this the final chapter, which like, it kind of concludes with like, yeah, this is a whole system thing. This isn't, 
you know, this isn't yeah. just Houston. This isn't just Miami. Like yeah. we have a broader right. thing. Um, yeah. Are we starting to see some of those patterns or those migratory movements happen like around the world that you've, you know, been watching? Definitely. I mean, I think that like, because of it's a lot of the times now it's a contributing factor that like doesn't get necessarily articulated in news coverage, but like, I mean, a lot of major movements, major migratory movements in the world right now from Central and South America to the United States and from North Africa to and Sub-Saharan Africa to Europe are influenced in like by climatic factors. Whether you want to say it's climate change, certainly it would get worse with climate change, right? Famines are potentially to get worse. Hurricanes will be more destructive. Like that, all the ingredients are there for a lot of people to try to move internationally. Like we don't know how many. You can find a lot of really scary uh, or just sort of bizarrely large projections on the internet, like 500 million or a billion, like by 2100, those numbers are probably not real, but like, <laughs> we don't really know, but like, certainly like on paper, you'll see a lot more of this. And like, you know, the largest, like the largest migration of uh, people from El Salvador to the United States, like in 1998, this was like, a, there was an immigration crisis under Clinton and that was caused by Hurricane Mitch. It was caused by a hurricane. Like that was the, thing that drove people from El Salvador to the United States at that time. And like, there's plenty of, if you look close enough, you can see a lot of immigration is already influenced by climatic factors, especially famine in Africa. So yeah, definitely. We're also, I feel like maybe it won't quit, you know, like I think there's still a lot of denialism at so many different points, but of, of culture, but recently I think it was Texas governor and several Texas politicians that were uh, trying to basically start a conspiracy about wet bulb not being a thing. <laughs> and like, it's very obvious that like science denialism is going to kill people. Um, yeah. How do you like, how do you view that we could like confront that in some way? Like, I mean, like to, you know, we have family members or relatives or something that, you know, we get together at Thanksgiving. Can you think of anything that you would point people to or that you know you really think it would that would help people like i don't know approach topics a little bit easier i mean it's a really tough question so i, I know i'm putting you on the spot but what's so interesting is like you know the idea of like like talking about it as a scientific truth from an argumentative standpoint it doesn't seem to help much right mm -hmm. like if i'm across the table from my uncle i can't say scientists think scientists think like that doesn't do anything for my uncle right yeah. like and it's, it's a difficult issue because on another issue, right? Like, let's just talk, I don't know, like, like another political issue, like gay marriage, right? Like you can make an emotional argument and a philosophical argument about whether that's like a thing that's good, right? And, and many people have done that to their uncles, right? But how can you say that about climate change? It's just like a scientific fact. It's either true or it's not. Like, it's a really tough one, right? I mean, for me, it's like, I wish that people could meet the people that like talk to the people that I talk to who all say, many of those people in that book did not believe in climate change. And I thought about adding a part about this, but I didn't. Like they were climate deniers and then they saw things happen to them, like sea level rise, mm -hmm. especially, right? Because it's irreversible and it's not, you can't just say, oh, that was a bad one. Like it's permanent, right? That really changed people's minds, especially in Louisiana and Texas. Like it really got people thinking, like this is not the way that my home is supposed to look. This is not what this place looks like. And that was powerful. And I'm sure that it'll come for a lot of people at a certain point, but until, unless if, if they're not willing to be convinced by that story, when it happens to someone else, it's hard to know what, what would change their minds, you know, yeah. but a lot of people's minds have changed just because 
time goes on, you keep hearing it over and over again, and then you just decide that maybe it's true. This is kind of, uh, I don't know if you heard me talk about this book at all, but one of the things that I have said in one in some of my reviews of your book is this is like true crime to me. Like this goes in uh-huh. like the pantheon of like the other true crime books that specifically, you know, ones like Dope Sick that, that you know, focus yeah. heavily on like an area or those types of things. But do you feel like, how do you feel about uh, people yeah. calling it kind it's- of? Like that's a good, that's fun, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, this is a this is a great question. I think it's one that's going to become really relevant. Is the question of like blame, right? Is like hurricanes and droughts and everything. Like they've happened since the dawn of time, right? Like, but like you know, there's studies, scientific studies that are pretty legit, saying like certain heat, like heat waves, especially. It's really easy to do it with this. Like, it's statistically impossible if we hadn't burned carbon dioxide for or burned fossil fuels for 250 years right just couldn't have happened so then then what right like (laughs) the question is like okay well we know who burned the carbon dioxide or excuse me burned the fossil fuels so then what right and we don't have like the world's legal institutions don't have the capability right now to process a question that large and there's it's also a good question of like and i think this is the kind of question you're getting at is like what's the punishment is it prison time for oil executives or is it like reparations from the wealthy countries to the people and the places that have suffered the most, right? Like at a personal level, I kind of am inclined to think it's more of a fine than a like, you know, prison time. But like, I can certainly see arguments both ways, right? Like it is a crime. It's a criminal act of, of A, of murder, right? But B, like more straightforwardly of fraud mm-hmm. that was perpetrated on shareholders, customers, et cetera, right? But like, yeah, I think there's a big question of like, it's easy to it's easy to understand the criminal criminality of it. The question, it just raises so many like fascinating questions of like, what can be done about that? And what like, what would justice even look like? So those are the questions that I've kind of been thinking a lot about lately is like, how do you meet out justice for that? And I don't know the answer. I don't know that anybody really does. There's objections to every possible uh, like way of dealing with it. Something I think like people have been feeling about and like their like just their daily living is just like it's getting harder and harder to afford, you know, to live yeah. like ever since the pandemic. And then we have inflation and uh, people losing their jobs and then even having a job but not being able to afford rent. And the housing market is currently, I mean, just I mean, it seems just ready yeah. to implode. Yeah. Um, and your book in a good way, because I think it's incredibly important, does not make that future look like bright. Like it's like, Mm -hmm. because I think like one of the things that stuck with me the most is like, it'll keep happening. Like the insurance companies will keep pulling out. We will like keep having situations where people lose their entire net worth and they will lose, you know, their uh, children's inheritances by this. Like the poor will continue to get poor. The rich will somehow, of course, make a way to profit off of this. And when we talk about climate change broadly, we talk about, like I said, we talk about like the disaster. We talk about the hurricane hitting or the wildfire encompassing a whole area. But I feel like there's the entire point of economics that like we're kind of not totally having a talk about because, you know, like the city of Houston, when it has a massive hurricane, yeah, no, it can afford like the, you know, the $40 billion or whatever to like fix the city, but it can't afford $40 billion every 
year or every two years or whatever. And it's kind of like this confrontation with what is sustainable. And I think like we're ultimately like facing the sustainability problem probably more intimately than ever before. Right. I think that that is like, it's a really good way of summing up like the big picture thing here, which is like, it's not just that like fires are so large that no society could ever withstand them or something. It's like human development, like the patterns of human development that we have engaged in and and favored for 100, 200 years, those are not sustainable under the climatic conditions that we now live in. Like, and it's those specific, it's the specific society that we've built is not sustainable because it's extremely vulnerable. People, the financially it's on a house of cards, right? Like it's financialized, it's based on speculation. It's people are like hanging on, like you said, kind of for dear life for, for affordability reasons. And that cannot, it, in, it just can't sustain these shocks, right? From a hurricane or something repeatedly. But like there are other society, other versions of society that potentially could, mm-hmm. we could build them, right? Like, but we don't exactly know what those look like. But like, you know, it's like this specific world we built is very, very vulnerable to climate change. And it's kind of shaking because of it, you know? There's been a lot of books recently or a lot of talk about, you know, hope. Uh, Rebecca Solman yeah. recently came out with, uh, I can't mm-hmm. remember the exact title, but it's kind of about hope in the era of climate change. But how do you view the conversations about hope? I mean, like, because I don't think you would devote your life to telling these stories and working mm-hmm. on, you know, just the daily life as a journalist if you didn't believe, like, you know, there is some hope out there. But do you think maybe we're trying to fight between complete doomerism and like like unfettered optimism, you know, like there is. No, yeah, no, there's definitely hope. And I mean, this is like, and again, like, I mean, different people who are very well educated in this topic see it very differently. But like the way that I see it is like, like over the past five years, private money, like, and like, like a, a, a the democratic party, right. Hardly like a, a the people that you would want to construct, like the perfect society of the future and like private industry, right. Like these are companies, right. Like they're profit seeking enterprises. They have poured, I think an amount of money into developing renewable energy and like, like electric vehicles, et cetera, not the best solutions again, but solutions. I don't think anybody in the climate space would have thought that this was going to happen six years ago. Like I remember when the second, third, I think second IPCC report came out in 2018, it was just completely like, there was just no hope, right? Like, and I think that things have moved really fast. And again, I'm saying if these are like the laggards, if these are the bench warmers in terms of like who you want building a society and they're able to get this done or like to start moving on this, like there's a lot of room for like improvement and there's a lot that could be done like there's a very good like healthy society that could be built out of this also though i think that like the worst outcomes like most most scientists would agree the worst outcomes are kind of they're getting slid off the table because of like how fast the decarbonization of the power sector is moving you know we are at 1.1 ish degrees celsius right now at the start of the century, people were talking seriously about four or five, six degrees Celsius. That would probably mean the end of human society. 
like most people now don't think that that is likely like three and a half, which is insane and bad. That's looking like the upper bound of like, like, and that's, that's a huge deal, you know? And I think people don't necessarily get like people get, people focus a lot on the bad and there's a lot of bad, you know, <laughs> people don't necessarily, that's, that hasn't necessarily become public. Hasn't been sunk in for a lot of the public that like, there's definitely a way out. I'm like, that's a huge, but that wasn't the case 10 years ago, you know, and that's huge. Would you point to any specific areas? I know, I know like parts of Minnesota have already publicly like been out in the news saying like they are going to be like refugee centers for climate change, you know, like they're, they're building for the future. You know, are there any areas that you've looked at that you think like, wow, this is like, this is forward progress that is being made and that is good and that is hopefully sustainable in some way? I mean, I don't know. I, I think that a lot of the climate like havens and refugees and stuff, it's more like rhetorical than it is anything mm-hmm. else right now. Like people say this and then if a lot of people started coming, like it'd be a different story. Like, cause then everyone gets mad because housing prices go up and there's gentrification and all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, I don't know that there's places necessarily that I think are like exemplifying this, but like what kind of makes me optimistic is that like the people I spoke to who ended up on the other side of this problem and they ended up in new places like they were able to like they were able to in many cases they were able to build new lives that in some cases despite the suffering that they endured the lives were better than the Mm -hmm. ones they had before right i think that the the scale the scale of the problem of the housing crisis the housing affordability crisis in the u.s is pushing a lot of cities to rethink how they build like we should build denser we should build closer to transit Los Angeles has made a ton of progress on this, for instance, like um, very recently. So it hasn't quite appeared yet, but like it, it's happening. Like those things will building better housing, building cities better and better urban planning. Like those are the things, Those if we can do that right, that's a really good sign for like handling climate displacement because people are going to live in cities, the cities are going to grow and we should grow them smart. And like there's examples of people who are being really thoughtful about that. But people also like, People are like, I hate using this word, but they're pretty resilient. I was amazed amazed by this. Like people's ability to like put down roots and start new lives and, and, and adapt to new places. Like it's true that like they shouldn't have to, right. But like they can. And so that's like, that's an important thing for people to keep in mind, right? Like just like the disaster doesn't end when the fire goes out, like people don't give up on living because they lose their homes. Right. No, I think I think the human component is, I mean, obviously, like the part of it that like is almost secondary in a lot of storytelling when we talk about climate change, like we talk about the disaster, but not about like the development of of people afterwards and stuff. And I think that's what your book does a really great job is getting into like the lives of these of these people. And something that I've seen just online and uh, is people kind of forming I don't a solidarity surrounding like political issues that like I would say like 10 years ago, no one was really talking about. Like, I, I feel like there's been, you know, and while conversations don't exactly mean political changes, but the amount of people like desiring a high speed rail system, like a more sustainable form of transportation system in the U.S. and cities moving more towards, you know, light rail and bus systems and trying more to be like more sustainable like, oh, like these are steady little bits of progress that are being made. I I am curious, you had to pick a couple cities that you think are just really like 
focusing uh, because I feel like there's a lot of very unfocused cities. You know what I mean? Like New Orleans doesn't seem like a very focused city. Like it seems like they got hit hard and some of the development has been slow, but um, New York seems to be like, at least conversationally trying to make some progress. Um, Yeah. New York city has done a really, I mean, again, it's all relative. Like they've done a really good job on this. They pulled down a bunch of money from the federal government. They've done these really pretty transformative investments in flood protection, storm surge, I think, and like, there's a lot, there's other cities that have done that. Norfolk tried to do it. They're still trying. They've got some good ideas. Boston's done okay. I think that, I think that the the cities that are going to matter the most are the ones in the Midwest, right? Like in the center of the country where they, they're, they're not seeing much attention yet, but like, they'll need to do it well. And I think that the other question is like the equity question, right? Like, it's just like, how can you invest to protect from climate change mm-hmm. and also like also help the most vulnerable people in your society, right? Like, and a good example of this is, and this is not, this is not an example of something doing something well, but like New York spent billions of dollars to protect the waterfront after Hurricane Sandy, which was a storm surge event, right? So it was a big wave. And it was like hit most of the coastal areas of the city, South Shore of Staten Island, and the Rockaways. And they did not do work to address rainfall risk in the middle of the city, which is what happened in 2021 when Hurricane Ida hit. People who lived in basement apartments all flooded, dozens of people died. And like, we weren't ready for that here. And like, that's because we weren't thinking about like all the risks that we were just reacting to like what had happened already. And now they're reacting to Ida. But like, yeah, I think that like forward planning is not easy. It's really hard. Seattle's done a good job of it. They have like some pretty good plans in this respect. But like think combining like focus on equity, long-term planning and getting the money is difficult. And I don't think anyone's, I don't think anyone's done it yet. Not at least on the United States. Do you think we're having enough conversations? I don't mean like politically. I don't mean like at city council offices. I mean, just like in the just normal day-to-day life of, you know, living of, of like, you know, hanging out with friends. Do you think, I mean, should climate change probably be something that you have more conversations with your friends about? Because, you know, I don't know if, you know, even raising awareness on kind of like the personal mm-hmm. level, you know, do you see that as I think kind so. of a helpful thing? I think so. Right. I mean, I think that local decisions are going to matter a lot. I think there's increasingly like people putting pressure on, city councils, state governments, utilities, right? Like the gas company that gives you your gas. Like, like those things are going to matter more and more. I mean, a lot of my friends, and I don't have that many friends who are climate journalists, but a lot of my friends talk about climate change all the time, even just as a joke, right? Sometimes <laughs> I feel like just joking about it or just bringing it up as like, oh, it's crazy, right? Like that can honestly be helpful. But I do think that like political consciousness and public consciousness of this has gone up so much in the past five years it's i think it's really hard for a lot of people to believe how mainstream of an issue it's become the fact that grist like financially can support like a 60 person newsroom like not 60 but like 40 to 50 like that's like we only write about climate change like that's crazy like (laughs) um i don't know like yeah there's definitely like a lot like things are definitely changing really fast and i think like the most convincing thing that I say in terms of optimism is like when I tell people that I'm just like really in a way I'm like really excited to see where the politics of climate change and energy go because it's changing so fast. Like that tends to help people understand like that it's not like that's not something you hear people say. <laughs> I'm really excited to see what happens with climate change. 
but like I kind of am because like there's a lot of possibility and a lot of people are aware of it now. Yeah. I would love it if you had any kind of recommendations for a great, I mean, obviously the grist, but any great news uh, sources or places that you should look, you know, whether it's Twitter or whatever Twitter used to be, but um, <laughs> um, for climate change, like um, outside of the US, you know, because I think like we obviously as a country, we hyper focus on the US and, you know, are there any great journalists telling climate stories outside the U.S. that you would like to recommend or any anything like that? There's a publication called The Rest of World, and they, they focus on the rest of the world, <laughs> and they've done some really good stuff on climate change. The Guardian in the U.K. has done a lot. NPR actually has done some, some things in, like, for instance, like Ari Shapiro did a big segment in West Africa that was really good. It's case by case. Reuters has done some, the, the big news agency has done some really good stuff in Mexico, uh, talking about the Colorado River crisis. AP did some stuff there, too. The big newspapers like Le Monde in France, they've done some really good stuff internationally about climate change. I wish I could read another language well enough to tell you that I read those newspapers. But like, I would say if you read regularly the climate section of like the Times, the AP, rest of the world, you have to watch out for it. But they'll every now and then they'll do a really good international climate story. They don't do enough of it. But unfortunately, like they're some of the only organizations that have the resources to do that internationally. Like in, in Times did a really good one about Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, mm-hmm. which is being moved or like they're they're moving where the capital is uh, to account for sea level rise. That was fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot. That's, not, no more specifics are coming to mind right now. My final question is uh, just for some book recommendations. These could be uh, climate change books or books that you read during uh, your research project or, you know, just things that you really love right now. I'm just curious what books you would recommend for me and the audience. Yeah. So I, I mostly, I mostly read fiction, uh, which is crazy. I know, <laughs> um, but in the course of reading the, or writing the book, there were a few books that were really, really helpful. So, uh, this book called rising by Elizabeth rush, uh, it's about sea level rise in the U S and, uh, she has a new book coming out called the quickening about the the way it's glacier, which is really, really, really good. Those are fantastic. There's a book called California Burning by Catherine Blunt, the Wall Street Journal reporter. It's about Pacific Gas and Electric, the company that caused the campfire. Fascinating book. There's a new novel called Mobility by this writer named Lydia Kiesling. It's about a person, a woman who works in the oil industry. That was pretty good. And then, you know, contemporary novelist that I really like, and I feel like he doesn't get enough credit is a guy named Percival Everett. Oh yeah. He's a fantastic comic writer. Yeah. Just one of my favorite writers right now. And so underappreciated. He's got a great book called Telephone. He's got, he's got like a dozen, dozens of great books. I've only read a few of them, but I love that guy. So that's like a bonus. <laughs> fiction well, thank you so much. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, let's see. I'm still on uh, X <laughs> at the <laughs> Jake underscore Biddle. And I guess I have Instagram, Jake Biddle, J-A-K-E-B-I-T-T-L-E. And then Grist, I've got a author page of Grist. That's where I write almost exclusively now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jake. Everyone, please, you absolutely must go check out The Great Displacement, Climate Change, and the Next American Migration by Jake Biddle. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in for another week of Schizophrenic Reads, the podcast. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash schizoreads. And this podcast is edited and produced by Tone Support. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.